you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says, The Return of Faith. Not entirely sure why I named it that, but it made a lot of sense months ago when I laid out all these uh, passages. We are in the end of Genesis chapter 11 today, and uh, this is an exciting passage. So, this is one of those passages that you skip over. You get to and say, okay, long names, hard names, uh, let's get on the good stuff, which we know is coming in chapter 12. But God put it in here for a reason, to encourage us and edify us and teach us and change us, convict us, all that stuff. And uh, so we have to pay attention. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but the beginning and the end. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 11 and uh, open in your Bibles, if you have them with, with you, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. If you don't have them, you can read along in the uh, outline. Genesis 11. We, uh, we're going to start at verse 10. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arphaxad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he fathered Selah. And Arphaxad lived after he fathered Selah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And it goes through there, follows this genealogy all the way down till we get to verse 26. And in verse 26, picking up there, it says, When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the Scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for this church family. Lord, we pray this morning as we come to your Word that you would give us understanding of who you are, what you do, what you're like, the difference you make in our lives. Lord, as we read this Scripture, these words are difficult, not only because they... Uh, present names that are strange and hard to pronounce, but because once again, the purpose of a genealogy isn't readily apparent. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see the lessons which you have given to us here in your word, not just lessons for uh, people of God thousands of years ago, but lessons for the people of God 
uh, right here and, and now. And may we see as we study this that your word is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and may we be given more confidence in your word and its authority as we study it this morning. For this we need your grace and your spirit, and give us the desire to learn from you this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the 21st and final sermon in this series on Genesis 1-11 through that we started in January. Almost five and a half months later, we have come to the end of the first section of the book of Genesis, hence the end of the beginning. These first 11 chapters of Genesis lay the groundwork, not just for the rest of Genesis, but for the entire Bible. There are few sections of Scripture more crucial for us to understand than the first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is where the story of the Bible begins. This is where we first come to understand who God is and who we are and where we come from and how we were created and what it means to be made in God's image and how sin entered the world and how the earliest uh, civilization spread across the earth. And from these chapters come all of the foundational doctrines of the Bible. God, man, sin, judgment, grace, salvation, forgiveness, and the first promise of the coming of the Messiah, later to be revealed as the Lord Jesus. In these chapters, we have learned about marriage, the family, and the course of temptation. We've learned about the dangers of anger, jealousy, lust, drunkenness, idolatry, and pride. We learned something about the power of Satan to deceive us, the power of temptation to overcome us, the power of sin to destroy us, and the power of rebellion to divide us. <coughs> and we also learn that no matter how evil the world becomes, God always has a remnant of people who still believe in Him and still call upon His name. And when judgment comes, as it did in Noah's day, the godly remnant is spared by grace. We learn here uh, that creation is true, the world was created by a direct miracle of God that there really was a serpent who really did tempt Eve, that the first murder was a case of brother killing brother, that a man named Enoch walked with God and was taken up into heaven, that Noah built an ark to save his family from the flood that covered the whole earth, that the rainbow means that God always keeps his promises, that Ham's sin led to his son Canaan and his descendants being cursed. We learn that racism is both foolish and sinful, and that all nations descend from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and God stopped the Tower of Babel so that idolatry would not spread over all the earth. And the confusion of languages that result explain why we have so many languages today. It's all pretty amazing stuff, and all of that is in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And so we've come to the end of Genesis 11, the end of the beginning, and what do we find? Another genealogy, oh joy. But genealogies are important in the Bible. They serve as connecting stories. The last genealogy in Genesis 5 connected us from Seth to Noah. And this one will connect us from Noah to Abram. 
So they serve a purpose of tying the story together. Remember that when you get to the Gospels, that when you get to those genealogies, it's a connecting story to connect the Old and the New Testaments. But they also demonstrate, I think, some key theological truths. And it's these truths I want to look at this morning. We're going to take another big picture look at this passage and see what God has to teach us from a text that most of us would just as soon skip over. Because this text is all about God's plan. God's plan for the world, God's plan for salvation, and God's plan for you. So if we turn to the text, to uh, Genesis 11, verse 1, the first thing that we're going to see is that God's plan involves God's choice. God's plan involves God's choice. This is actually the third time I've preached a genealogy in this series. Not sure why I didn't assign those to other people. But I didn't. It's either grace or stupidity, I'm not sure. But Genesis 5 was a genealogy. The table of nations in Genesis 10 was sort of a geographic genealogy of Noah's three sons. And now the problem of a genealogy is pretty easy to figure out. It's just a list of names. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so who became the father of so-and-so. It's like reading the phone book. Except here you can't pronounce the names. And so there's names like Arfaxad, which looks like Arpakshad, but is pronounced Arfaxad. And this is a genealogy of the ten generations starting with Shem. A little clue, most of the genealogies in the Old Testament list ten generations or are in groups of ten generations. And this is the one starting with Shem, who's Noah's middle son, and finishing with Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And basically we're told each man's name, how old he was when his first son was born, and how long he lived after that. And in most cases we're told that he had other sons and daughters. And that's what makes up most of this passage. And the, the great temptation is just to read it and shrug it off as a list of meaningless names. But names represent actual people. And names matter because people matter. And if your name was uh, Arfaxad, you'd sure be glad to see your name on the list. And what you need to understand is there is a narrowing process at work here. Chapter 10 listed the three sons of Noah. God chose Shem as the line through which he would bring blessing to the world. And of Shem's five sons, God chose our fox had. In each case we read, he had other sons and daughters. But only one of those offspring was chosen in the ancestry leading from Noah through Shem to Abraham and eventually to Christ. God's choice is what lies behind this history. And so as we consider this genealogy from the standpoint of the flow of biblical history, there's a few things that stand out very clearly and the first one is that God's choice is according to grace, not merit. God's choice is according to grace, not merit. You were wondering how I was going to get grace out of a genealogy. Well, we're just going to start, go there in the middle, and finish there. 
You may wonder why God chooses certain individuals. Many people think that maybe he looked out, you know, down uh, through history, you saw somebody that would have a lot of faith or live a decent life and say, there's my guy, I'll choose him. That's not the way it works. We don't know much about Shem's descendants listed here, but we do know something about Terah, Abram's father, and the few generations before him. Because in the book of Joshua, we read, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham came from a pagan family and was probably an idolater himself when God called him. In fact, even three generations later, in Genesis 31, which I think we get to in January, we'll see when Rachel uh, stole her father's household gods that the family was still dealing with idolatry. Three generations later. And what we see is God's sovereign choice never depends on our merit. He doesn't look down from heaven and say, well, there's a good man, I'll choose him. Rather, God only chooses and only calls sinners to himself. Abraham was a sinner. God chose him simply because of grace, apart from anything that God foresaw in Abraham. And if God chose Abraham because he foresaw that Abraham would be a great guy, then Abraham could boast in his faith as the reason that God chose him. But salvation from start to finish is all of God and not at all uh, from man. And one reason that people don't like this doctrine is because they think it's not fair for God to choose some and not all. But to contend that God is not fair to show mercy to some and not to others is to first usurp God's sovereignty, and second, to impugn his character. And that's exactly the way Paul will argue for this in Romans 9. God would be fair if he condemned everyone. And all of these men and all of these descendants, they had known about God through their ancestor Noah and the flood. But as Paul puts it in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. These men had suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They rejected God's revelation of his attributes and his power through his creation. And so they, and not God, are responsible for their spiritual condition. Now, Genesis 10 and 11 shows us the course of the nations going their own way after the flood, sort of the Old Testament's way of saying what Paul said, that God gave them up to their sin, he permits them to go their own ways. We'll see that mentioned several times uh, at the end of Romans 1 and again in Acts chapter 14. The point is God didn't choose Abraham because he's a good man. God chose Abraham to demonstrate his grace. And he doesn't choose anyone because they deserve it. I hope that doesn't come as sad news to you. God only chooses sinners who only deserve judgment. And while that may be a blow uh, to our pride, 
The reality is it's actually very good news. Because it means you can't do anything to qualify yourself for God's salvation. You can only come to God confessing your sin and asking for His mercy, and He will grant it because He's a merciful God. God's plan of salvation involves His choice according to His grace. So that's the first thing we learn about God's plan and God's choice. The second thing we learn about God's choice is God's choice of a life is what really matters. The thing which separated Abraham from all of his contemporaries was that God chose him. It's God's hand on a life that matters. That's what makes the difference. If God doesn't choose, if he doesn't call a person to himself, you've just got man-centered religion, and there's plenty of that out there. But when God's in it, you've got his power unto salvation. Now, this whole issue we call the doctrine of election, and a lot of people stumble over the doctrine of election. But the heart of election is that salvation is of God. He originates it. He moves in our hearts and our lives before we even seek him so we can take no credit for our salvation. It all comes from him. And that humbles your pride, but it should be a source of great joy and blessing uh, when it dawns on you. It's not up to you. Stop trying to earn it. You can't impress God. And you'll wear yourself out trying to do that. Now, this whole idea is very biblical. We read much the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Abraham's life is going to show us, and we're going to be with Abraham for a few months now, it's going to show us that God has his hand on a life before that person's even aware of it. He places each person into a particular family. And sometimes, even though that family serves idols, God will take one member of that family and use him or her to turn that family around and even turn whole nations towards God for generations afterwards. Every person who's been used of God will testify that it's God's choice of him or her that's made all the difference in their life. The prophet Jeremiah said that God knew him, consecrated him, appointed him before he was even formed in the womb, Jeremiah 1. The apostle Paul said that God set him apart even from his mother's womb, Galatians 1. By nature, they were all sinners, but by God's grace, they were chosen to know him and serve him, and that's what matters. And I think it's a source of great comfort when God reveals to you that he chose you by his grace, and that because of his choice, your life can be used by him in his eternal plan of salvation. That's the basis for the biblical doctrine of election. He chooses some he doesn't choose others, and that fact has vast implications for salvation. Matthew 22 says many are called, but few are chosen. And we may not like that. We may even fight against it or deny it. 
But the fact remains is that our God is a choosing God. And when we get to heaven, we'll discover that God chose us to be in Christ before we ever chose to come to Christ by faith. You might say it this way, God chose us, which enabled us to then choose him, but his choice is the one that really matters. God's choice always comes first. If he didn't choose us, we would never choose him. And with regard to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we can summarize this truth in one sentence. God's election is by sovereign grace in order to narrow the line that will one day produce the Messiah. That's what's going on here. It's not just a random genealogy of really old people. He is showing us how he is crafting the line that will someday lead all the way to Jesus. Because from the beginning, God intended to send his son to this earth to be our savior. And that line of promise goes across the generations from father to son. It starts with Adam, goes to Seth, winds its way to Noah, and then to Shem, passes along the line of Genesis 11 until it reaches Abram. And later the line will include Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. And finally that line will culminate in Joseph and Mary and an infant lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Now there's a long way between Genesis 11 and Bethlehem, but the line between them is a straight line. Genesis 11 contains the line of Shem because he's the chosen one from Noah's three sons just as Abram is the chosen one from Terah's three sons. Our God is a choosing God. That's the first thing we learn here. And that's important. And you can miss that amongst all the names and so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so. You have to understand what God's doing. He is choosing, he's crafting a line that will eventually lead to Jesus. Second thing we learn about God's plan is that God's plan involves God's timing. So there's the second thing you don't like about Genesis 11. It shows God's timing both with nations and individuals. So let's see how God's plan involves God's timing with the nations. We don't know exactly how much time elapsed from Shem to Abraham. If you add up the totals here, you get about 350 years from the birth of our fox sad to the birth of Abraham. But it's common in that day uh, and in the Old Testament when tracing ancestry to be selective and leave gaps and to skip people. Uh, but at any rate, there is a fair amount of time between Noah and when God chose Abraham and began to call the people to himself. Lots of people are born and died uh, during those years. The nations have spread out over all the earth. Most of these nations have strayed from the truth about God, and yet for reasons known only to him, God waited over 350 years until Abraham was on the scene to issue his covenant to bless all the nations through Abraham. And again, this bothers some people. What about all those people who never heard? Well, they're not without a witness through creation of God's goodness and power. Again, we know that from Romans 1 and Acts 14. And as we've seen, they're not innocent people. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But it ought to make us grateful for the fact that we live in a time and a place where God has made known his salvation 
in a very clear and definite way. We have God's Word in front of us. We have abundant opportunities to hear His truth preached and taught. I mean, think about it. What if you were born in, born in America 500 years ago? God wasn't moving in this land at that time as He is now. So be thankful that you live now and are privileged to know Him. Clearly, God works at different times in different nations. But equally clear is that God's plan involves God's timing with individuals. Next week, we'll read in Genesis 12 that Abraham was 75 when he left Haran uh, for Canaan. Well, obviously, even though people were living longer periods of time, uh, he's not a young man. So why didn't God call Abraham when he was 20? Why didn't he give him Isaac when he was 30? I don't know. I can't answer that question except to say that God's timing is often not ours. Even after God called Abraham, he grew slowly. God had originally called him when he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And he got as far as Haran and he settled there until his father died. We saw that in this morning's responsive reading from Acts 7. So perhaps from God's perspective, that was wasted time. He went halfway and stopped. And yet God still used him. So we see that God works slowly with Abraham. We'll see in future weeks after he gets to Canaan, he doesn't stay. He moves on to Egypt and he tries to pawn off Sarah, his wife, as his sister. And most of you know how he later tried to force God's promise by fathering a son through Hagar. In spite of his rough edges and obvious sins and all the time he took, God still used Abraham. Now, that's a tremendous encouragement to me. Because it usually seems like it's taking me so long to learn what God is trying to teach me. And I've wasted so much time and gone down so many uh, side trails and... I would be in total despair if I thought it was all up to me. But seeing how God works slowly and surely with Abraham encourages me that there's hope even for me. And it should encourage you, there's hope even for you too. So these genealogies teach us that God is slowly but steadily moving in history to accomplish his plan of salvation, and his plan involves his choices and his timing. But the third thing we learn about God's plan is that God's plan involves God's people. And most obviously, we see that with Abraham. God's plan involved Abraham. Why not our fox sat, other than God knew that we would have trouble pronouncing his name years from then? Or he could have chosen Terah. That's not too difficult. But we don't know. We know that God used Abraham in his plan of salvation in the history of the human race. And Abraham responds to God's call in faith and obedience. He's only one man out of millions of people on the earth. <coughs> but his life, obedient to God, makes an enormous, huge difference. And an individual life yielded to God's purpose can have a tremendous impact on others, and on events. Perhaps none of us will be used to shape history 
to the extent that Abraham was used. But we can know that God is weaving our lives into the tapestry of history if we're obedient to his word and to his will and to his call. We may not see the final results in our lifetime. In fact, it is most likely that we will not see the final results of our obedience in our own lifetime. But we can know that our lives are not in vain if we walk with God. And even the trials, we talked a little bit about comfort and affliction in the adult Sunday school this morning. Even the trials that God brings into our life are part of this tapestry. Often the trials we go through become the source of greatest blessings for us. Verse 30 mentions that Sarah was barren. As you know, that's going to figure pretty prominently in the story as it unfolds. Now, if you have asked Abraham at this point, I imagine he probably would have complained. I don't understand why God doesn't give us any children. And I'm sure he would have complained later on after God promised to give him more descendants than the sand of the seashore. And he still didn't have any children. But as we move through Genesis, you'll see that God turns that trial into the greatest blessing of Abraham's life. And he often does that with us. We don't understand why he's doing things uh, the way he is and why he's not doing things the way we want him to do them. I mean, isn't he listening to us? We're praying, we're telling God how, uh, you know, he should act and what he should do and what I need. I mean, don't I know what I need? The answer is obviously not. God often does that. And like Abraham, we have to learn to trust him even when we don't understand what's going on. But God's plan of salvation doesn't just include, you know, the, the famous heroes of the, of the Bible like Abraham. God's plan involves you. Even as God's hand was on Abraham, it's on you too. The very fact that you're hearing this message this morning is proof that God has intersected your life. Even if you're not yet a believer. Like Abraham was at first, you may still be in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is to say, you've not yet come to know God in a personal way. Probably like Abraham at this stage in his life, you're serving idols, gods of your own making. Perhaps you serve the God of money or success or pleasure. You probably serve the God of self. But today you've heard the living and true God call your name and saying, I want you to turn from your sin and follow me. And if you'll say yes to God, like Abraham, your life will never be the same. Some of you are in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God's calling your name, and you need to respond. Others of you may be at Haran. This is Abraham's halfway point, his way station. He began to follow God's call when he left Ur and moved to Haran, several hundred miles closer to Canaan, but he got sidetracked. And it's going to take another call from God to get him out of Haran. That call in chapter 12 is probably the second call that God issued to Abraham. Thankfully, God often issues second calls to those that he's going to use in his plan. 
God called Moses, and Moses blew it by killing an Egyptian and fleeing into the wilderness for 40 years. But then God called Moses again. God called Jonah. Jonah took off in the opposite direction. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God called Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. And then the Lord called him again and restored him with the threefold command to feed my sheep. If you've begun to follow the Lord, but you've gotten sidetracked along the way, this morning he's telling you to come on. I want you to keep going with me. I haven't given up on you. Don't give up on me. I will always be there. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't stop now. And we'll see it's just that way for Abraham. His life is full of trials and strange timing and having to be called by God a second time. Which leads us to the last thing we learn about God's plan, which is that God's plan involves faith and obedience. I know two blanks in one point, and I was just feeling ornery last night, you know, when I did this. Faith and obedience. In the last few verses of Genesis 11, we see the necessary preparation of Abram's faith. Verses 27 to 32 focus on Terah, the father of Abram. Terah actually has three sons, Abram, Noor, and Haran. Haran died while his father was alive, and eventually Abram married Sarai, who will later be called Sarah. The whole family moves to the city of Haran, which uh, perhaps it was named by Terah in memory of his son, and they stayed there until Terah died. It's evidently a period of many years. And only after his father's death did Abram proceed to Canaan, the land the Lord had promised to him long before. Now stop and consider what this means. The last few verses of Genesis 11 are all about death and loss and a series of separations in Abram's life. He is separated from his homeland when he had to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. He is separated from his family when first his brother dies and then his father dies. He is separated from his destination because he stops and stays many years in Haran. And he's separated from his dream when his wife is unable to have children. Now, any one of these four separations could turn into a heavy burden for anyone to bear. Taken together, they represent the building of his faith through times of trial and adversity. And looking back, we can see those things were necessary in order to prepare Abram to become Abraham, who's the father of multitudes. That's what Abraham means and becomes the supreme biblical example of a man of faith and the father of the Jewish nation. In fact, he's still referred to in many parts of the world as our father Abraham. But mark this truth. These things were necessary. The great Christian writer A.W. Tozer said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I think that statement is true both to the Bible and to life. As God prepared Abram through trial and loss, he prepares us the same way. 
Nothing is ever wasted with God. The summer our teens are in small groups and, and they're uh, studying about uh, Don't Waste Your Life. It's a great book. All your parents should go out and buy it. Nothing's ever wasted with God. Your pain is not wasted. Your sorrow is not wasted. Your loss is not wasted. Your defeats are not wasted. Your broken dreams are not wasted. Your tears have a purpose, and your broken heart has a place in God's plan. And the hard part about all of this is that often God prepares us for better things by weaning us from those good things that we thought we couldn't live without. God prepares us for better things by weaning us from the good things that we thought we couldn't live without. That is a hugely important biblical principle. It may be a relationship we thought would last forever. It may be a job we wanted to keep until we retired. It may be a house we loved or a church that meant so much to us. Maybe a friendship that brought joy and strength to us. If we live long enough, we'll discover that most of the things we thought were irreplaceable will be taken from us one by one. It's not that those things are bad uh, in and of themselves, not at all. They're good things. They can bring us joy and fulfillment. And God weans us from the good things, taking them from us, till there's nothing left but God alone. You think about it. We come into this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, naked we come, naked we go. And the things that we possess in between aren't really ours anyway. Even our most cherished relationships within the family are gifts from God. The whole process of spiritual growth is a slow weaning away from things that mean so much to us. And in the end, we're back where we started, just you and God. And the Lord's telling us, I don't do this to punish you, but to prepare you and teach you to trust in Christ alone. And after all that he had endured, Abram's days, are his greatest days, are still yet to come. Let that encourage you as you consider God's work in your life. The pain that you're going through is not for nothing. He takes away the things we thought we couldn't live without in order to give us something better and more satisfying. We give up the temporal to gain the eternal. We give up the things that we cannot keep in order to get the things that we cannot lose. So in the end, it's still all of grace. In the end, it's still all of grace. The genealogies of the Bible teach us that God is faithful across generations. You know, when I first came to this church 14 and a half years ago, it's about 15 years, about six months before that, I was doing a phone interview with some folks that you know. And so I asked them, do you have any older folks in the church. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, we got this one guy, he's like 49. I was like, never mind. 
We're talking about two entirely different things. And so one of the things when we gather, of course, I teased that guy. His name was Dave, of course. And I teased him for several years till he moved to Texas uh, that he was the really old guy. Now that I'm 53, it doesn't sound so old. But uh, one of the things we prayed about was that we would become a cross-generational church, that we wouldn't just have people all in one age group and look around. God's answered that prayer. Could answer it some more. It won't bother me to see more gray hair. You know, that's a good thing. The Bible exalts gray hair. Amen. But God's answered that prayer. We have all the generations within the church now. That's a good thing. Because some of the children of this church don't have grandparents or don't have grandparents close or don't have a relationship, and we have grandparents for them. And we have grandparents who don't have uh, grandchildren anymore, or maybe their grandchildren aren't close, or maybe that relationship's been broken, and we have grandchildren for them. And whatever part of the family that you're missing in your life is present in this church to fill that hole and that void. Don't think it can't be filled. It can be. There are people here to do it. Our God is faithful across generations. He is a transgenerational God. And the God who is faithful yesterday is the God who is faithful today. And the God who is faithful today will be faithful tomorrow because He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is fully faithful at all times and in all situations. Now I want to end by repeating part of my very first sermon uh, in Genesis last January, which I'm sure you all still remember. This book gives us the beginnings, the origins of the doctrine of God, which rose to tower high above all the pagan notions of the day. It's the genesis of the doctrine of creation, which likewise rose far above all the crude mythologies of the surrounding nations. Genesis gives us the doctrine of man, demonstrating that right from the very beginning we're both wonderful and awful. And the doctrine of salvation has its genesis in Eden and its grand development throughout the whole book. All of that is astounding. What we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, about salvation, all begins in Genesis. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. Jesus, the Messiah, has his prophetic message, his Genesis in the opening chapters of Genesis. The importance of Genesis for the believer cannot be overstated. The first half of this book, Genesis 1 through 11, is primeval history, universal history. It concerns four great events, the creation from Genesis 1 and 2, the fall and its aftermath from Genesis 2 through 5, the flood from Genesis 6 through 9, and then all the events leading up to and surrounding the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11. We're about to get into the second half of the book, which covers patriarchal history, for, focusing also on four things. Four great patriarchs. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
And we're going to follow their stories all the way through to the end. And the famous Hebrew term, toledot, translated generations of, which our passage has two of today, occurs ten times in the book of Genesis. Five in primeval history and five in patriarchal history. Five of them introduce narratives and five of them introduce genealogies. This is a finely crafted book. When you get to the parts hard to understand, at least understand this is here for a reason. It's got something to teach me. And these first 11 chapters, which gave us that primeval history, that universal history of the world, if you remember, I've related five stories that have the same structure. The fall, Cain, the sons of God marrying the daughters of man, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And they all have a fourfold pattern. Sin, sins described, speech, a speech by God announcing the penalty, grace, where God brings grace to the situation to ease the misery caused by sin, and finally punishment where God punishes the sin. And here's amazing grace. It's amazing because in all these stories, there is this increasing avalanche of sin and the resulting punishment that necessarily becomes more severe, and yet there's always more grace. Adam and Eve are punished, but God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark of protection. The flood comes, but God graciously preserves mankind through Noah. Only in the case of Babel, does the element of grace appear to be muted? But that obvious need is what sets up the continuation of grace in the second half of the book through patriarchal history. And in this section that we're about to embark on, Abraham will receive the gracious promise that through him all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And then the whole patriarchal period is unfolding the fulfilling of that gracious promise. And despite the patriarch's uh, repeated sins, God's promise will stand. It almost seems like they're working against the promise. They keep screwing up. But the salvation history of the patriarchal narratives functions as a gracious answer to mankind's scattering at Babel. And so you'll see the Genesis will continue to be all about grace. Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That sums up the second half of Genesis. Far from being a faded page fallen into antiquity, Genesis breathes the grace of God. And I pray that we continue to have an amazing, exciting, challenging time that our souls will get worked over by this overall where sin increases, grace abounds theme of patriarchal history. It's good soul medicine. It's grace from the beginning in both primeval and patriarchal history, and it will always be grace. Genesis provides us with a grand revelation of God's faithfulness as it recounts his faithfulness over and over and over again in the lives of the patriarchs. We see that God remains faithful, 
even when the people to whom the promises are made become the greatest threat to the fulfillment of the promise. Such is God's faithfulness that these incredibly sinful, disordered lives of the promise bearers still can't stop the promises. That's the way God's always been. The New Testament tells us that. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we're faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Faithfulness is a primary reality about God. It's a Genesis reality. It's nothing new, but it means everything. In regard to man, Genesis is eloquent. As I said, he's truly wonderful, and yet at the same time, truly awful. The bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. And even the best of the patriarchs are helpless, hopeless sinners. No one ever comes to merit salvation. And we understand that right from the beginning, salvation can only come by faith. Moses makes it clear that's how Abraham, the greatest of the patriarchs, is saved. Genesis 15, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Paul's going to allude to that multiple times in the New Testament, saying of Abraham in Romans 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believed so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. There's only one way that fallen man can be saved, and it's the Genesis way, by grace, through faith. There's never been another way. It's always been the theme of the story, the story that begins here in Genesis, the story that's all about God and all about grace. You need to understand this story so you can find your place in it. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the grace you keep pouring out on your people, on your people here in Genesis, on your people here at Potomac Hills. Help us to remember that it's your grace, your unmerited favor, which establishes your people, and not our own works, not our own righteousness, not our own goodness. And Lord, teach us about gratefulness. Teach us about faithfulness. Teach us to pray for these things and to pray for these things for our children and our grandchildren. And teach us to help our children pray for their parents and their grandparents for gratefulness and faithfulness. Lord, here you are again, hard passage, difficult to understand, but we see over and over and over you're showing grace to the undeserving. Lord, we thank you that no one is beyond your grace. We thank you that we are not beyond your grace. We thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sins. We ask all these things in his name because he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.